there's a temptation in a business to once you get to a certain level to kind of plateau and be like, okay, uh, I'm good with this level. I've made it. Let's just coast for a while. Um, I'm comfortable, right? And um, he warned us against that. Welcome to Diesel Stories, where we sit down with professionals across the industry to hear about their journey. I'm Jacob Finley, along with Chris O'Brien, and today I tell my story. All right, so, um, so Jacob, there's a lot going on here. We've got Full Bay. We, we were going through this uh, um, at another company, so I've known you for a little bit. Um, where did you get the inspiration to start Full Bay? It's a great question, Chris. It was actually, I guess, uh, eight years ago this month when we're recording this, but um, a friend of mine owned a diesel repair shop, and he actually is the one that had to explain to me about the industry period. I didn't really process ever that this industry even existed, the industry of commercial repair. You just kind of assume that, you know, the trucks get fixed by maybe the fleet that owns it and maybe a car repair shop will do it. And it's, uh, so he helped me understand that and we became friends and he, uh, we actually set up this kind of weekly meetup uh, with three couples. So by that time I knew what a diesel repair shop was. And I was also um, in the middle of helping build a different software company for physical therapists and I, helping build in that I ran the finance side, right? And I had previously done uh, another software company uh, that was a startup that we grew up in and sold off. Um, so over time, I had kind of like gotten the itch to try to make a run out of myself. Like, I wonder if I could actually do this. I, the first time I... I walked into, uh, not walked, but the first time I saw the founder of the first software company I worked for walk by and I knew who he was, I was like, oh, wow, that guy's a founder. I, you know, not only did I never think that that could be me, but I was just in awe, right? Yeah. Um, and then as time went on and um, we grew that one and then I went to another one, I, I, I came to realize that um, founders are just normal people, right? That maybe they're really smart in some areas, really hard workers. Um, the stars align somewhat for them. Maybe, um, um, it's mostly not that though. It's mostly hard work and perseverance. And I started to get this itch to make a run at it. So when he mentioned that he couldn't find the software, it kind of hit a, a light bulb kind of went on for me. Like, wait a minute. Uh, what if we build this? And so, um, I convinced him to, uh, of the idea, right? And we started meeting super early mornings and um, trying to trying to hash out what that would look like. So wow. So you know, kind of like hearing about this industry and not being familiar with it. What was the what was like just one shocker moment where you were just blown away by the you know the, the commercial repair industry that you just had no idea that on your top five or your top three for whoa I didn't know that. I think it was the first time I saw an owner throw a chair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, that's, I'm just joking. Um, but uh, I, I always thought I was, I've always been fascinated with the idea of, well, not always, but since, uh, you know, getting into the healthcare industry with this idea of software as a tool for healing people and the dirty secret 
that I discovered early on, and it's getting better now, but was that electronic medical records for the most part were not there for healing people. They were there for billing people. And there was a lot of great research out there. Um, the first company I worked for, Carefax, um, uh, near the end, uh, as I delegated a lot of my responsibilities, I was able to get involved more and more on the product side and reading some of the amazing research that was out there being produced by um, really smart people about how software could be used to heal. And uh, I think it was in 2009, uh, Congress passed the High Tech Act. I think it was part of the overall stimulus, but which basically mandated that hospitals adopt some sort of meaningful electronic medical record. And so there's this rush to adopt like kind of the old guard, Epic and Cerner. And, and it, it kind of quashed a lot of the innovation that was going on and that we were also going through the downturn then. So I think before the High Tech Act, if healthcare was 10 years behind, the High Tech Act maybe put it another five years behind, uh, technology speaking, that's still trying to catch up. Um, and so these ideas were getting quashed and part of kind of the, the light bulb moment for me was this idea of, well, these are all awesome ideas. Truck repair is really similar to healthcare in that preventive maintenance plays such a huge role and my friend who ran a shop totally believed that, and he was right, uh, and he ran a shop that way. And so the idea was, can we take some of these really good ideas from the electronic medical records world that maybe are not seeing the light of day about how software can be used as a tool to heal and apply them in truck repair uh, to use software as a tool to heal, sure, trucks, heavy equipment, but same concept. And the more I thought about this and started, um, I don't want to get too far ahead, but started working in the industry, the more I started to see the value of this, not just for trucks, but Chris, I remember you told me once um, when we were working together. Um, so this is, so I was a WebPT at the time. We were working together, right? Yeah. And um, you mentioned one day, because you had run the, the, the fleet over at Shamrock uh, for a period, and you mentioned that you never want to be on a freeway right next to an 18 wheeler, right? You never want to drive right next to them because you said something like all that has to happen is a kingpin goes out. And at the time I, you might've said kingpin, but that went right over my head because I had no idea what a kingpin was. And it swerves in front of you, you hit it and you know, there's a fireball and you and your family are gone, right? That's all. So like ever since then, I've always been very careful to avoid it. And as my kids have grown up, told them to do the same thing. But if you think about it, um, we know, um, so we've uh, we've supported uh, some great charities. One of them, um, Truckers Final Mile, where they where they help drivers get home when tragedy strikes, or the family of a um, a driver who's suffered a fatality get uh, the body home and stuff. It's on. It's more than two drivers a day die from accidents, and then I think it's um, it's it's higher than that. I I don't have the stats right in front of me, but a lot of people die from highway fatalities related to trucks. A lot of it's driver error, but some of it's equipment failure. And so, um, anyway, just connecting is the, this idea that on some level you can connect it back into at least public health where the, the roads can get safer. So anyway, I don't yeah. know if I answered your question. I kind of rambled there, but yeah, no, it's great because, uh, you know, and to tie back to that comment that you made earlier is like, if you buy a truck with a reputable company, they're probably on top of their PM. Yeah. So you can have that, uh, shelter the sun from you. Right. But if you're by a truck, no name, it's not clear. Oh, yeah, it looks sure. a little shady. Yeah. That's the one that you don't have it block the sun. I've definitely and, learned that over time. Yeah. When it, you, right. you, you can tell a truck and it's the same kind of truck where a lot of times, uh, 
a shop owner, uh, maybe it's a walking customer. He sees the truck and he's like, "Ah, never mind. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna touch your truck because I know I'm <laughs> gonna get blamed for something that goes wrong." But yeah, totally. Yeah, you can trust some of them. Yeah. Yep. So you know, we um, a lot. You know, your background in software, we know or we've heard it um, from the full base story. Um, but you have a fascinating story of just growing up and the education. You're a very smart guy who's. Um, I don't think a lot of people know about your education and your background. And it, it wasn't like your parents were well-to-do and had you, you know, uh, at an, uh, a full-ride Harvard Ivy League school right. funded. No, you it didn't was get not no like that at all. Red carpet treatment there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm the middle of seven kids. And my father was a school teacher, worked really hard to support the family, did uh, piano tuning on the side to kind of make ends meet. He was a music teacher. And I was actually almost born in Arizona, um, uh, kind of near where you grew up, not in Tucson, but the Gila Valley. Okay. So the, I live here now in Arizona, but I kind of have to like dig for my roots. So um, almost was born there. My dad was teaching school uh, out there, um, moved to Utah. That's where I ended up being born. But yeah, um, didn't have uh, a lot growing up. Uh, my parents certainly loved us. They were great parents and everything, but um, I got, I, I didn't really expect, I ended up going to college, but I remember listening to uh, a news report, maybe when I was 12 years old about a state college down the road, capping enrollment and thinking, well, that's it for me. Like they're capping enrollment. There's no way I can get in now. Um, and even though I was getting, um, like straight A's in school, but I, I didn't, I never thought, I don't know. I just never really had, uh, kind of the connection there. So, um, grew up, uh, played the cello. I still play. And, um, my dad was my teacher actually through seventh, eighth and ninth grade. And then, um, by the time I got to 11th grade, they had built a new high school. My dad was taking over the music side there and I was required to go by the district. So he was my teacher again, junior and senior <laughs> year. Lovely. Yeah. Which, um, had a lot of benefits and some downside, but, um, yeah, that was kind of my background. And I, when I, uh, when I went to college, I had to, um, I had to pay my own way. So I applied for FAFSA, got some Pell grants and got a scholarship, academic scholarship, but like for food and housing and stuff like that, like I worked as hard as I could in the summer and then went to college and blew through the money very carefully, like one <laughs> tight budget, one gallon of milk <laughs> shared with my brother, who's my roommate all week. We were very careful, um, and did that. And I basically continued doing that through college. Um, eventually I, I guess between my sophomore and junior year, I sold pest control in Arizona. Right. Um, so I hooked up, um, I had $90 to my name by the end of the school year. And, uh, that's how much a Southwest ticket from Salt Lake city to Phoenix was. So okay. I got <laughs> to Phoenix, um, some friends I was selling with picked me up. I literally had nothing to my name, but by the end of the summer, I, I had saved enough for a car and to support me through school the next school year and stuff like that had met my now wife, um, by then. And, uh, she was down, uh, here in Arizona for, for the summer from school. And, uh, but yeah, that was kind of my school experience. So I, I, I served, a, um, a Mormon mission in Austria um, in the middle of all this. And I remember, um, kind of speaking to the self-confidence thing. I was, so you pay your own way, right? So I worked really hard to save for that. My parents, I mean, I couldn't save enough for it. So my parents, um, supported me through there, which was a great sacrifice. Um, 
Uh, but I remember we, nobody really listened to us. I went to Austria, right? They're, they're all Catholic and I totally respect that. Um, we had great times hiking mountains and stuff like that on our free time. But I remember I was, uh, we were required once a month to go to like an opera or something. And at the time I was serving in the city in Vienna and we got our like cheap standing room only opera ticket, um, to an opera. Um, and went around the corner for like a treat, which was to eat at Subway restaurant. So we walk in and there was like the Dean of the, uh, Mary school of management from BYU standing there, like randomly in Vienna, in Europe <laughs> and, uh, just standing there. So we ended up, uh, my companion and I ended up eating dinner with him and got some advice from him. Anyway, one thing leads to another. And, um, I get a degree in accounting from BYU and my master's, I stick around for my master's degree and then start, um, out in Phoenix for Deloitte and Touche and, um, I had kind of gotten the itch to become a professor of accounting. Yeah. That's what I thought my, was fascinating. This is where I'm like, so how do we go from professor? Cause yeah. like you could have been a professor at BYU or yeah. a college. And so when I was at BYU, um, I was, I worked, I had on cap campus jobs. One of them was as a research assistant for a professor. And we ended up co-authoring a paper together, which was fun. We did the research and all that stuff, got it published. And, um, I also had the opportunity. So that state college, I didn't think I could ever get into. I had the, I taught two semesters of accounting there. So oh, not wow. only did I, <laughs> like I taught there when I was in college. So it just goes to show you just, sometimes we underestimate ourselves. Right. Uh, and I, I enjoyed teaching, um, and so forth. But when I graduated, um, this was shortly after nine 11. So I guess I graduated in 2004 and, um, you start applying for internships, I guess, between your junior and senior year and nobody was doing internships. So what ended up happening was, um, Deloitte and Touche was, that's a, one of the big four accounting firms. There used to be five, Arthur Anderson went right. down with Enron, but, yep. uh, instead of doing internships, they were just doing super early offers. So I ended up getting an offer to work, uh, for this prestigious accounting firm, maybe, geez, like 15 months before graduation. So I knew well ahead of time that I had a job like, um, and, uh, but no internship. So I sold pest control, um, that summer again, uh, junior between junior and senior years. And then I stayed an extra year, fifth year for a master's degree. Um, forgot where I was going with that, but, um, you were going to be a PhD. Oh yeah. Yeah. Be. So, uh, I was taking all the classes like econometrics and classes. I really had no business being in cause I'm not really in, I mean, I, I studied accounting, so on and so forth, but, um, and I can do the numbers and everything. I can do the math and I get all the stats and everything, but, um, uh, like the, the deep econometrics, I, 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 I didn't have a lot of time to study at the time. I had a child by then I was married, had a kid, another one on the way. I was working like 25, 30 hours a week plus going to school full time. So I don't know, I was kind of burnt out by then. Uh, but I was taking all the classes I needed to get into a good PhD program. So most of my friends that were doing that too, went right on to a doctoral program. I had this offer and it was kind of like, do I go make some actual, actually make some money or do I continue with school? And I was kind of feeling burned out. So I decided uh, I'll go for a couple of years, get some real work experience so I could speak with like authority at least when I'm a teacher instead of just being like a theorist. So I, I accepted the offer and then um, eventually uh, took the tests and everything, applied to some great graduate schools, got into a great program in about a month. So this is after a couple of years working in public accounting, which was awesome, by the way. It was hard work, but some pretty cool clients like uh, Fender, the guitar company oh, nice. was one of our clients. Yeah. So I remember doing an inventory, end of year inventory, walking around with the 
with the team there at the factory, I think in Ontario, California, and uh, just observing the inventory, make sure everything's running correctly. So I'm like the snot nosed kids right out, of, right out of school. One of the great things of being an auditor is they like shove you right in to like doing relatively important stuff. And um, I'm walking around with like the CFO of Fender and her entourage and everybody in the factory can't leave until my inventory observation, me like testing that they did the inventory right was done. And it was like Christmas. Like everyone wants to go <laughs> home to their family to start celebrating Christmas. Um, so that was pretty fun. Other, um, and they brought me into the custom shop and showed me these cool guitars they were making for like famous people who I should have recognized. But um, in my family, we were only allowed to like listen to classical music and the Carpenters. Right. <laughs> so I didn't hear the Carpenters in there. I, there was some, um, some really cool stuff and um, they should have sent somebody that could really appreciate what was going on there. I felt really bad. Um, but yeah, Fender, um, Rockford, Fosgate, you know, yeah. uh, they're one of the, one of our clients, Taser, um, oh. and, uh, a bunch that you've never heard of. Uh, most people have never heard of, but, um, it's pretty interesting. And yeah, so get into a doctoral program, decide, um, about a month out that I don't, this is no knock on teachers. My father's a teacher. I really respect people who teach and research, but for me, I just had this realization that, if I read a really good business book, I want to go out and like apply it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like go onto the market and just like destroy people with, you know, like destroy the competition by executing on what I just learned. Um, I thought I can't imagine spending the rest of my career, I guess, teaching and not, not actually out there like doing business. And I really felt the pull. And sometimes you have to get right up to the edge, right? to realize what the right decision is. And that was definitely one of those cases. Um, so it was actually the program I chose was local U of A. So I can't, um, I, maybe it's been enough time like. now, but I took up one of their doctoral slots. Well, they, you, well, you know, being from Tucson, I can't, uh, that's just flawless. <laughs> yeah, right there. I know it <laughs> would have been good. Um, it was there or Iowa or kind of my choices were down to. So, um, decided not to do it. And then I found myself in public accounting. Like, what am I doing in public accounting? This, um, the whole idea was to get experience to become a professor. I'm not doing that anymore. And, um, I ended up getting, um, the opportunity to go help this company Carefax, um, in Scottsdale, uh, electronic medical records, electronic medical records company. And, um, so went and joined the team there as the controller. So basically the number two finance guy and, um, the rest is kind of history. It's just yeah. an incredible ride there. So it's anyway. just amazing. Super impressive. I, I don't know that a lot of folks know that you were right there. You were going to be uh, a teacher at a college and you taught at another school and yeah. you're very well a educated. A lot of my friends and, are doing that now. Yeah. They're running departments and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very impressive. So with all of that, you've got, um, you know, uh, in school you're successful and in business we're seeing you're successful. Who, um, who's your inspiration? My inspiration, definitely my w wife is awesome, super supportive. She is pretty cool. I, the, the few <laughs> yeah. times I have met her, she's yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. cool. I'm like, wait a minute, she's cool, Jacob. Okay, he's cool. Yeah. Um, I think you're cool because she's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> um, when I was at BYU, I, it's funny. Um, you know how, do you ever have that nightmare where you like realize you signed up for a class and never showed up? Yeah. And then it's <laughs> the end of the semester and like, holy cow, what am I doing? I, I know I have that one all the time. I literally lived that. So 
I mentioned I was taking all these classes that I didn't have any business being in so that I could prepare for a PhD program. Well, I taken so many that I, I could get an, an economics minor if I took this one other class that really wouldn't help me get into a PhD program, but would have given me the minor, uh, which maybe would have helped me. Anyway, so I, I go to sign up for the class. Well, it's being offered at the exact same time as this other one that I desperately wanted to take. is an entrepreneurship class taught by Larry Miller, who at the time was the owner of the Utah Jazz. And he would only teach this class, I think, once a year, spring term. And they would only allow, I think, 12 to 15 people, something like that, in the class. And so I was faced with th this dilemma. Do I want to get my econ minor and help my prospects of getting into a doctoral program? Or do I want to take this entrepreneurship class from like a living legend, basically, who's a billionaire, I believe, at the time? Um, and uh, so which one did I choose? I signed up for both classes and they met at the exact same time. <laughs> so the idea was I would show up for the tests, get enough of a passing grade in the econ class that I would get the minor but I would actually go to the entrepreneurship class. And that's what I did. And it turns out the minor was meaningless. I should have not even done that. Um, the worst thing was it gave me a bad grade on my transcript, which probably hurt me big time <laughs> trying to get into like a, an elite program. So it is what it is. Um, so anyway, um, but with this class with Larry Miller, it was incredible because he self-made man grew up in Salt Lake city, worked for a dealer. Uh, let's see, what's the story? He, you know, when he's a teenager, he was a, I uh, liked to race cars down State Street in Utah and um, got to know the parts guys really well. And eventually he got a job at a parts counter, uh, eventually at a Toyota dealership. He could still like rattle off part numbers from like a 1972 Toyota, like had him memorized. The guy was amazing with numbers. Um, eventually he starts taking over parts. Uh, I think we have a blog article about this where I talk about it, where he, he was running the parts counter or the whole parts department for a dealership in Utah, I think Murray, Utah. And the owner or the general manager, somebody was like, um, had an issue with the parts guys and, um, said was Larry was in his office talking to him. The guy's like parts guys are a dime a dozen. And so the story goes, Larry reaches into his pocket, pulls out a dime, throws it at him. And he says, there's a dime, go get yourself a dozen parts guys. And he got the whole department to quit. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, wow. something like that. But he definitely instilled respect for parts guys in us. And uh, eventually he became a, gen became a general manager, I think out in Colorado of a dealership. And at the age of 35, he was given the opportunity to buy his first dealership. So he was, he was older, 35 when he first started this. And by the time I knew him when he was probably 60, um, you know, he was who he was. He bought the jazz in the mid eighties and this was 20 years after that. So anyway, um, but he, what the way he would teach, he uh, would bring in, so he had his own philosophies, right? So he talked to us about how, you know, at the end of the day, we all have to work, right? He told the story of like Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, right? Where, um, you know, they get cast out and they are required to sweat for their bread, basically. And he's like, at the end of the day, no matter what you do, you got to sweat for your bread. So it's just a matter of what you're going to do. Um, right, everybody right. has to choose. Are you going to work for yourself or work for somebody else? And um, he would have us kind of write down, um, principles we learned and stuff like this. It, it was really good, but he would also bring in his friends who were successful entrepreneurs and we would just like glean as much as we could from these guys. So I learned so much from that class that I, to this day, I still go back through my notes and, and recall. And just from his example of he, 
he was successful because he just worked so hard. Um, he was he was a smart guy and savvy and everything, and he went after opportunities. But um, one thing he told me, he told us once, and I didn't know him like personally, right? I mean, there was 15 of us. I got everything I could out of it, but I still consider him a mentor from the experience. Um, was a lot of people think that business owners and entrepreneurs and everything, and this goes for shop owners, right? Um, or any kind of owner are risk, like they're risky people. They, they like to take risks. And he said, the most successful people I've ever known are also the most risk averse people I've ever known Mm. because they do, they work as hard as they can to eliminate as much of the risk of the equation as possible. And then they go after it. Interesting. And so it's just stuff yeah, like that, right? Good very, mentor. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's great. So inspiration and mentor. And um, so that leads to, and that's that's amazing. Like uh, most people, well, you, can, you, you, you can't speak with Larry Miller today. You know? Right. Um, so that, uh, love the way that you chose. And then you figured out a way and you knew what was most important because I think yeah. it's prevailing, right? It's teaching you uh, or it's, you're successful. You've continue to be successful after that. And you're working in the business, not, uh, yeah. Theorizing. Yeah. It was awesome. Um, so I imagine to get something started costs a lot of money. Everyone's like, well, I can never start anything. You know, we, I would, it would take all this money to get this thing going. How did you get things started? Um, for full bay with full bay. Yeah. So I, <laughs> so I, so we graduated from college. We had to borrow money for a down payment. Um, Luckily, this was back in the day when they were loaning money to anybody. This is right before the lead up to the financial crisis. So we bought a house in 2004. Um, my wife is a stay at home mom. And um, we, we've we always tried to live within our, well within our means, like live way below. When I uh, get to Carefax, they paid, they would pay a quarterly bonus. It was kind of like... Um, it's basically part of your compensation only you got it every quarter. So I would just methodically shove it into a savings account, just wouldn't touch it. Like that was not part of my compensation and would build it up that way. Bought some rental property. Like when the market fell out, um, I don't know how you experienced it, but I, we had bought our house for geez, maybe just under 300,000. Um, the one that we were in at the time. And at one time it was worth like 90. So we were way underwater and a friend of mine, made a pact that, um, we would, instead of walking away and I don't fault anybody that walked away, but we, we decided we weren't going to walk away. We're going to stay in the neighborhood where our kids had friends, so on and so forth. And we were going to pay, not only get out from being underwater, we were going to completely pay off our house. We're going to make it, we're going to just going to, we're going to do it. Right. Um, and, uh, so that was kind of the mindset. So instead of like laying down and dying in desperation or whatever, um, I went out and, uh, bought some, a friend of mine helped me uh, figure out how to buy some little apartments, like a threeplex and a fourplex out of foreclosure, fixed them up my evening, stuff like that. So just like different things like that. Um, um, I, you know, one, one of them that we bought, we didn't realize for some reason this didn't come in the, up in the inspection. We didn't realize until after we'd already bought it that, um, all the wiring had been cut out from the attic. We had to rewire the entire thing. It was a fourplex, oh. one-story fourplex, so kind of a shared attic. Anyway, so I spent a lot of time up in My that goodness. attic <laughs> in this in the heat, <laughs> like rewiring it. Uh, I got a lot of help from professionals, but um, had to pay for it, right? So just like methodically over time, saving money. So by the time, um, and one of the good things about being so with Carefax, it grew up and it sold, and um, I had some shares being 
um, you know, the controller there. And then similar thing with WebPT, we, we sold to a private equity firm um, there. So just, and would always just never touch the money. So by the time it came to, um, I guess, live on savings, which you kind of have to do sometimes when we didn't raise money with full bay, right. In the beginning, we bootstrapped it. And so, um, there was a long time where we were living on savings. So I was, I literally had, um, six kids at the time. Um, and then a seventh while we we're kind of on All the journey, on I guess we'll talk about that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll get to that, but, but burning through savings. So just, you know, it's like what we preach to the shops all the time. Like, Pay yourself first and make sure you're putting money into a reserve, like into a savings account and just treat it like an expense, like it doesn't exist. It's right. amazing. It's amazing the peace of mind you find. Uh, it, it's amazing the distinction. Like if you live above your means, your life is full of stress. If you live below your means, your life is like peace. Yes. I mean, all other things being equal, yeah. but. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, that's no, the idea. So, and I recall, like, even when I started, we, you know, obviously uh, some of the early uh, folks in leadership and, you know, you went without a salary for a long period of time. Like, you didn't pay yourself. We, yeah. and I remember we were having a conversation. Um, you decided to pay me instead of pay you just to get another employee. <laughs> well, I never thought I could actually <laughs> land Chris O'Brien at Full Bay. No, no, no. So when the opportunity came up, yeah, totally. But yeah, so... Um, I guess we should talk about that. So, uh, we were a web PT together, right? You come in and, um, and I don't want to tell your story for you, but like basically, um, do what we do there, learn a ton about growing and scaling a SaaS company, right. And, um, about what it takes and so forth. And it came to the point where I felt like I needed to go work on this project full time on full day, full time. And I had an opportunity to go work in a shop. And um, originally I was going to purchase uh, half of the shop. Didn't end up doing that. But the idea was to go work in a shop, um, finish building Full Bay, and um, and start selling, right? Selling it to other shops, selling access. So um, you were still a WebPT at the time. I was in charge of the finances. I didn't hold the CFO title there. Uh, they were not giving out C-level titles at the time to anybody but the founders and the CEO. Uh, but I was in charge of all of the money. So preparing board presentations, stuff like that. Very it was essentially the role, role of a CFO. <laughs> but I, I will never claim to have held the title, just to be clear. Um, does that make sense, Chris? You yes. Got that? All right. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so um, leave there to go work in a truck shop. And um, I was... I, I, the timing worked out where I think the first day at the truck shop was a Monday. I left on a Friday and that Monday was my birthday. It was my 35th birthday, the same age Larry Miller was when he bought his first shop. And to me, it just kind of worked out that way. But I, uh, I deliberately timed it a little bit because it felt almost poetic. Like, okay, if I'm going to make a run at it, I'm going to try to follow what Larry did as closely as possible. This is one little minor, probably insignificant way, but at least I'm, doing it the same way he is, if that makes sense. So fair enough. So that's the idea. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's amazing. So a lot of, you know, um, just like you said, being smart with your, with your money, you did a, you, you bought something and sold it, um, you know, from the apartment complex, there was, you were very yeah. strategic about building your savings account. And then along the way you had bonuses and stuff. Right. I think a lot of folks out there will go buy a new car, um, start to go outside their means, go buy another house and another house. And then pretty soon you're right. It's stressful. 
you were very intentional, it sounds like, in the, the, the way that you managed money to get you in this, this spot. But then there was sacrifice. What, you know, your kids, like your family, what were they saying when you were doing all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so we, we always have, we always made it work. Like we, I, they weren't suffering necessarily. Is that what you mean? Like, or just thinking that you're crazy. Not oh, behind, like, well, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, well, a lot of people thought I was crazy. It's like to leave the position I was in with amazing prospects left shares on the table that were worth a lot of money a few years later uh, to go work in a truck shop um, at a time when people didn't even know, like I knew what the industry was and I, and I had a pretty good idea of what the, uh, what the need was and what we could accomplish by uh, starting full bay. Most people didn't have any clue. They just thought I was crazy. Like, what is he thinking? And there's like anybody that started a business will know this feeling of, or maybe you've had a friend where they tell you their idea and you feel a little bit embarrassed for them because it's nice that they have that idea, but that's not going to work. You know, have you ever felt like that with somebody? (laughs) I'm sure everyone's had a friend that you felt that for. Well, if you've started one almost without question, you probably had other people feeling embarrassed for you because they didn't get it. Right. And a lot of times businesses fail. Right. So when I left people, you know, told me I was crazy to my face I heard things later of what was said behind my back. And, um, you kind of have to be strong and kind of have the vision. Luckily it worked out. It totally worked out. It was still hard. Working in the shop was hard. Um, basically had to start living on savings at that point. Um, and, uh, so yeah. Well, yeah. And then you have a seventh child while all this is going on and now eight, right? So, that's um, right. but it sounds like you had a good, stable family support structure. Yeah. My wife was totally behind it more so than I was. And she, um, she was right there. I mean, we got married really young. Um, uh, while we were still in college, she'd already graduated by then. She, uh, graduated, uh, pretty fast. She's really smart. But um, she came into one of the entrepreneurship classes where Larry Miller brought in his wife, Gail, and uh, they, they kind of talked through things. And I think all of that was just part of like the preparation for, okay, this is what it takes. It's going to take some sacrifice. And by the way, the Millers are great examples. Gail talked about how she still like clipped coupons. And like, I think they were living on like 3000 a month, 3500 a month at the time that they're like billionaires, right? Oh, wow. Which is crazy. Um, but that's, uh, kind of how you do it. She's read books like the millionaire next door where, you know, that, um, people that accumulate, uh, money are not the ones that blow money, right? Mm. They're, those are two separate groups of people. Essentially, mm-hmm. you're not going to accumulate it. Um, so she was super supportive. My kids were, um, they've, I've kept them in the loop every step of the way of how things are going. Uh, cause I, I know as a kid, um, you can get stressed out about, um, things really easily and you have to be sensitive to that. So I've always been super transparent with my kids about how things are going and, um, just to make sure they are aware. And it's, it's kind of nice because my kids have grown up with the company and I'm able to like share stuff with them and they get it. They're like, Oh, that's amazing. Cause I remember when this and this, and we were struggling with this. So, yeah. So what keeps you going through the good times? Like, so, and, and so I mean, that's a follow up to the good times and the bad times. What keeps you going? Like as things are going well and not well, like, do you ever just get content and coasting and, or do you, how how do you, cause it's, you know, if, if there's adversity, you're trying to rise above it. So sometimes the hard times are easier. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But when things are going good, some might say, Hey, things are good right now. What, what uh, has you, what keeps you going? 
Yeah, it's that whole thing of, you know, are we agents to act or objects to be acted upon? And it sure is nice when people are like cracking the whip on us. So then we don't have to like be our own source of energy. But when uh, when things are going well, um, you know, one of the things Larry warned us about is there's a temptation in a business to once you get to a certain level to kind of plateau and be like, OK, uh, I'm good with this level. I've made it. Let's just coast for a while. Um, I'm comfortable. Right. And um, he warned us against that because he basically was saying, look, you know, if you want to um, if you want to do that, then fine. But if what you really want to do is like grow really big, you have to understand that usually the limitations that we run up against are limitations that we impose on ourselves. That if we continue figuring it out, we can continue to execute and grow. And, in you know, with growing a business, that means like installing uh, maybe a leadership level that didn't exist before because you've gotten to that point where. You have to delegate things down. You cannot be the one making all the decisions. You have to delegate responsibility and stuff like that. So um, how, how do good th times go? Um, I don't know, Chris. <laughs> how do, I, I, I'm, look, I, m most business owners live in a constant state of paranoia. And I definitely, uh, I'm always in that state, just wondering um, what's our contingency plan if this happens or this or this. And um so I guess I'm still midstream right now in kind of paranoia, making sure all bases are covered, everything's taken care of, nothing goes wrong. Yeah, and I guess to, even to help add to, to that, that's a great point, is um, I often notice that you don't settle. It's very much like uh, Lean Six Sigma, or they say painting a battleship. As soon as you're done painting the battleship, it's time to start all over because it takes you this enormous amount of time. And yeah, it uh, really seems like even when things are going good, you're still painting the battleship. Like you never stop painting. Yeah, I mean, as far as full bay goes, we I'm really happy of how with how far we've gotten it, and um, and uh, simple software is extremely difficult to build. Like anybody can build like super complicated software, and I'm really proud of how over time um, full bay becomes more and more capable, but also in a lot of ways more like simpler, right? And we have a lot of work going into that. The like the vision from six, seven, eight years ago of what we wanted to do, um, we're we're still just scratching the surface of it because it's, it's hard to build software. It just is. And so I, like, I'm really happy with where we are so far, but like knowing the gap, like where we want to get, um, definitely keeps me going. Nice. So. Very nice. Um, here's something just, what is the craziest story that you have? It could be work related, personal. What is just the craziest story you've got? Everybody just has one. The craziest story. Oh, geez. And we could, we could keep it to just work if that makes it easier. If the craziest work story. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, that I can legally tell. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I'll have to think. Let's come back to that one, Chris. Yeah, fair enough. And then, um, okay, so how about this? You know, everybody's, so we, we're building business. You're using your finances. Um, things are going good. Um, what's your worst financial hit? Where, where was this point? Was there ever a point where you just, you were at this low financially and just were unsure? Yeah. I mean, we kind of talked about the housing crisis. So where I was, um, I, I, I was doing a, as good a job as I could to live within my means. And suddenly I found myself like $200,000 underwater, essentially on our house. It wasn't that much cause we had put money down, but, um, things were tough, you know, back in like 2008, 2009 during that time period. And 
I remember pulling into my neighborhood and thinking, you know, this, uh, this sucks. I hate this neighborhood because, you know, it's just drained me and I'll never recover. I, I just, I don't know how I'm going to recover from this. And, um, the pact with my friend who was one of those three couples, by the way, that we'd meet up with regularly. Uh, he's awesome. Steve, um, helped with that and, um, start, started to get proactive. So got those, uh, a threeplex and a fourplex here in Phoenix. And then also got, um, partnered with my brother-in-law to buy a couple rental homes, which we thought were at the bottom of the market. We thought the market had bottomed out. It turns out it had not bottomed, <laughs> bottomed out. So we bought it still on the down downswing. And, um, uh, we talked about this a little bit in another episode, but the, the idea was, uh, we, we, we get this house and we are renting bedrooms to, um, one at a time to, uh, ASU students, to girls that went to ASU and it was a four bedroom house and it was losing money. And we, uh, were having to put money in every month. So you so, have an investment and so this might be the crazy story, yeah. but you have an investment where you're trying to make it's money. Right break and even. <laughs> yeah. So we decided we would cover the utilities and everything. So they were paying like, I don't know, four or 500 bucks a month for the room. And that would include utilities. So we had to cover the mortgage and the utilities. And then of course, maintenance, the house was built in the fifties or something. So, um, there's always something going wrong. Well, we were at, um, one thing my wife has always insisted is that we go to the beach at least once a year. So we live in Phoenix. It's not that far of a drive. And, uh, we've kind of got this tradition of going every year uh, around the 4th of July. So we're out there. My brother-in-law's out there too, cause we'll go with family a lot. And, um, we both are on our way to Chase Bank to put money in yet again to cover the shortfall. And, um, when we get back, I kind of had this idea because the girls we were renting it to had shoved a king size mattress into the study room of the house. So it's a four bedroom house plus a study, relatively small room, but geez, it fit a king size mattress. And the idea just hit me. Like if they're willing to do whatever they're doing in that room, then maybe we could convert that thing to another bedroom. One thing leads to another. I think um, the cost is five or $6,000, but we expanded that room, took out some of the garage um, and split this huge laundry room and made another bathroom. It's just like a basic five by eight bathroom, right? And uh, we were able to rent that additional bedroom for 400 bucks a month. Suddenly it was profitable. Oh. And there's just something about that where even though it has nothing to do with software companies or truck repair or anything. It's just basic business. Something about being down, kind of like what you said, adversity. It's almost easier with adversity because it forces you to figure stuff out yeah. and to like innovate. That was definitely adversity. And there's something that like clicked for me, like, wait a minute, I'm actually capable of making something profitable. You know what I mean? Of turning something around myself with nobody else help. It was my idea. Um, uh, my brother-in-law helped a lot, but uh, we executed it and suddenly it was profitable. And so anytime I've been in a situation where since then, where from a business perspective, things are like looking down or whatever, I remember that you just fix it, right? You don't lay down and die. You fix it. There, nothing is so hard that it can't be fixed from a business perspective, unless you've gotten yourself way dug into a hole. And uh, hopefully you're, you're tracking your metrics well enough that you turn it around well before that happens, right? But if you find yourself in a pinch, it is possible to turn it around. It's not doomsday, so on and so forth. So that's my story. So would you, with all of that, would you do anything different? 
I would not have bought any of those rentals. <laughs> I would have kept my powder dry cash wise and been like my friend that was buying, uh, I guess, foreclosures off the courthouse steps or something like that. So I was just going to say, do you have any advice for somebody? That might be <laughs> advice right there. <laughs> but yeah. uh, do you have any advice uh, for anyone who's looking to start software or just you or know, anything? Yeah. I mean, look, um, we we. So in what we do, we have, we do a delicate dance because we put out a lot of content on how to start a diesel repair shop, how to run it, how to be profitable. And that's geared toward the owners of the shop, right? Who, um, ultimately are our customers for what, what we do. Um, and the delicate dance is, well, they're technicians, you know, are they going to split off and do their own thing? One thing that I've realized is that not everybody's cut out to be a business owner. Some people want the stability of a regular paycheck it is stressful right to be somebody like who creates a business from nothing it's stressful there's a lot of responsibility there's a lot of risk in it and so um if you feel i guess my advice to somebody is it's okay if you're not a business owner you don't have to be one to be like cool or anything um it's in fact super admirable um to to work and help um grow a company and um, be part of the team essentially that's okay like everyone's got their own skill set for people who want to i guess make a run at it then you gotta have you gotta have money in the bank i mean you can't it's not like you see in the movies where you're like oh i've got a business idea i'm gonna go into the bank and get a loan and start my business idea it doesn't actually work like that no one's gonna give you a loan um for nothing unless it's like a family member or something like that and you really don't want to go down that road so i guess what i would recommend is like you mentioned, Lean Six Sigma, right? There's this whole movement in the uh, in the startup world called Lean, the Lean Startup. It's a great book, and there's um, there's others like it. It starts small, um, learn as fast as you can while blowing through as little money as you can, and the goal is to you know pivot or iterate from plan A to the plan that eventually actually works with blowing through as little money as possible. You're going to blow through some. But uh, that's essentially how you start something. And if you have the itch, uh, make a run at it. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Diesel Stories Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and check out dieselstories.com for more episodes.